From One World Trade Center in Manhattan, overlooking dozens of golf courses that will never have us as members, this is the Golf Digest Podcast. Welcome to the Golf Digest Podcast. This is Sam Weinman. One of the top teachers in the game and one of the Golf Digest longtime contributors is Hank Haney. Hank is best known for his time coaching Tiger Woods from 2004 to 2010 in that period. They won six majors together, but he's very active today on social media, and he hosts a radio show on PGA Tour Radio every day from 10 to 11. And he joins me today along with Golf Digest senior writer Matt Rudy, who is Hank's longtime co-conspirator at Golf Digest. Matt has been working with Hank for 16 years. Uh, They wrote a book together, and they work together on Hank's monthly articles in Golf Digest. Hank, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So we're coming off uh, a second consecutive week in which the PGA Tour winner was Adam Scott, and obviously the big story with Scott heading into this year is how he would respond to abandoning his anchored putter, uh, his long putter in his case. What do you think that says about the adjustment it, it is for players? Is it is misleading that Scott is having as you know, much of an easy time as he is? Uh, it would be really misleading if he went short putter conventional style. But he hasn't gone short putter conventional style. He's gone short putter with an alternative style with his, uh, you know, pencil grip or claw grip or whatever you want to call it. But that's, that's the, the adjustment that's made a big difference. Uh, that, for somebody who has a, a yip in their stroke, that will, will give them some relief. And obviously it's done that for Adam. The, the concern that, that I had was I wasn't sure if he, if he had a, an issue in both hands or just in his uh, just in his, his right hand because the right hand you can deal with a lot easier. The left hand, uh, if you have the yip in both hands, it's hard to deal with. Other than with the anchored method, where you can just kind of put your left hand on your chest and, and it doesn't do anything. So the fact that it was just in one hand and that he's been able to uh, go with that that uh, alternative style with the grip. That's given him some uh, some great results, obviously, and it's the same thing we saw at Sergio Garcia. So when everybody says, you know, oh, he hasn't had any problem with the short putter, well, he's not just using the short putter; he's using the short putter with an alternative style. But what's your take on Roy McIlroy switching to a left-hand low? Uh, you know, my, my take on that is he said he was missing putts to the left. So uh, obviously, if you putt with left-hand low, you're bigger tendency is going to be to block putts to the right. So if that was his problem, I think it's a, it's a nice uh, change that will help him correct that. I think the opposite would be true if you're blocking putts to the right. If you're blocking putts to the right, you might want to go to the other style. But if you're, you know, let's just say if your you know, miss was a hook and you give somebody a lesson to fix the hook, you should have good results, but if you gave that same lesson to somebody that was slicing, it probably wouldn't have that good of results, and that's kind of the way that I look at it. But I also see that, I mean, Rory's done good in the past when he has worked on something. Uh, he's had good short-term results. I think it gives him a, a boost of, of confidence. And, and on top of that, you also saw him, especially last week, putting in a lot of time in his putting, and maybe that more time uh, than he had been putting in simply because he was trying something, uh, working on a new method, and maybe it energized him to practice more, or maybe he'll fe- he felt like it was necessary to practice more. So to me, 
you know, I, I think that's where those results come from, that, that it was a good correction for pulling the ball and also it, it, it kind of got him in a mode of practice some more. Is it your impression, Hank, that of the guys who were anchoring a year ago, most of them are or going to experiment with these alternative grips as opposed to conventional grip, that that's the, the halfway point between the two? Well, if they, if they, if they don't, they're going to be helpless. Um, you know, they have no choice. So, it, it, you know, this idea of long putter and then they went to the short putter, I mean, they're, they're with the long putter for a reason. And, you know, they have a, a, some kind of yip in their stroke. Now, when we measured over 5,000 people, uh, we, we came up with the, the number of 26% of all golfers had the, had the yips of the 5,000 people that we measured on the, the SAM system uh, putting machine. So it, this is a, a real prevalent problem. Uh, you look on the PGA Tour, and seven of the top 15 players in the world use some kind of alternative style. Uh, so, you know, one of those those methods was uh, the, the long putter and anchoring it, and that was particularly uh, helpful for people who had had the yips in, in both hands. But if it's just in one hand, uh, you can you can deal with it, and especially if it's in the right hand, your right-handed golfer, you can deal with it pretty effectively by by using one of these these different grips and I, and I think that's what you're going to see players do for sure. Another thing that's happened here recently, I'm sure you've seen it everybody in the world I think has seen it at this point. You Tiger videoed made a video of one of his 9 iron swings on a indoor mm. in, indoor uh indoor uh virtual reality. I think he was playing was he playing Aviara? I think it yes. was yeah, he was playing yeah, Aviara. And uh, I think it was designed to encourage people that he was moving along from not being able to touch a club to now being able to hit balls. I mean, you've been around Tiger a lot, obviously, and you've been around Tiger at a time when he needed to recuperate from an injury. Um, can you give some insight on what the difference is between getting to be healthy and then when you're healthy, whatever that means for Tiger, then taking the next step to actually being ready to play in a tournament? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good point, man. I mean, you know, to me, when I look at it, um, you know, Tiger's missed another six months, and when you add it all up, uh, yeah, I think it it equals over six years in the last eight years that he has he has been you know out of action for one reason or another, injuries or scandal or whatever. And I I think uh, you know that's just so much time missed. You know, now people act like. You know, they act like he, when he left, he was playing good. Well, he wasn't. He was he was playing very poorly for mm-hmm. certainly by any standards that would be associated with Tiger Woods. He was near the bottom of of every major statistical category. Uh, so, to me, it's a question of being able to get where you can can climb back up that mountain. And to do it, it's going to take a lot of practice, and a lot of work. When a doctor gives you permission to hit a ball or to hit you know, 50 balls or to practice uh, for an hour or, or two hours or or even if it's, you know, a, a couple hours of putting and, and a, a couple hours of hitting, at, at that point, at that point, you're still losing ground to your competition because unless you can get back to the, to the point where you're doing as much or more than they're doing, I don't know how you can, you can expect to, to catch up to them. So, so I think it's a, it's a big gap between – you know, hitting a, a nine iron into a, 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 a you know a net uh, with a, a easy swing—that's uh, a long way from full-time practice to uh, start making up ground that you've lost from all the time that he's that he has is spent off. But certainly, it was encouraging to, to see him him swing, albeit the, the the swing was a little little questionable. I think by um, you know most uh, 
most people that would analyze it uh, kind of, you know, would would look at that and say, you know, wow, that's the one you posted a, a, a video of. <laughs> how do you how do you think he comes to a decision about when he's ready, whatever that means, to put his game on display? I mean, do you think that's a difficult question for him to answer for himself? Is it? Is it? Do you think his ego is such at this point where he doesn't really care what people think when if, when they watch and he's going to do it for himself? How do you think that dynamic plays out? I think if he's a hundred percent committed to to having a uh, you know a, a real long term stab at trying to get his game back, and I don't think he would be hesitant to put his game on display if it was less than a hundred percent and feel like hey I'll I'll slowly work my way back into into some form and I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, given the fact that he has he has a, a built in excuse. I mean, he hasn't played. He's had a lot of injuries. I mean, you would think that. Um, you know, the, everyone would give him, including the media, would give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and I would think if he's committed to a long-term, uh, you know, dedication to trying to get his game back, I think he would probably put his game on display even when it wasn't quite ready. If he if he is committed to only coming back if he can come back at the highest level, which is you know something that he said in the past, but he certainly didn't adhere to that last year. But if if he truthfully has that idea, then I think he will wait until he's as positive that his game can compete at the highest level, and then he'll, he, would, he would come back then, or, or he would decide, you know what, I'm just not able to practice as much as I need to practice uh, and play as much as I need to play. And remember, it's not just, you know, practice in one day. It's day after day after day, and at least, you know, three or four weeks in a row. I mean, I don't know how you can really play competitive golf without being able to practice and play at least on three consecutive weeks because you have to get in some kind of a groove of doing things and uh you know if 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 that's you know his criteria for determining when he's ready then i think it'll it'll be longer before we see him but uh and you know and and who knows if, if we will see him but my, my guess is is the fact that you know he's already shown us that swing that uh, that I think he's going to be dedicated to a long term comeback and I think he's probably going to uh, you know come back maybe maybe before some of us had guessed that he would. So much of your work with him, Hank, was trying to uh, have a swing that could withstand the pressure on on a, on a knee that was obviously not 100 percent healthy. How much of a accommodation do you think? he's going to need to make moving forward to his back, meaning obviously he's his back, even if it's 100% healthy based on where he was a year ago, it's vulnerable. Well, I mean, that's a good question. I, You know, you would think that, that that would be the number one priority, but, you know, I don't care how much of a, of a you know, alteration you make in your swing. There's no swing that is going to be, you know, totally easy on your back. Mm-hmm. When I was with Tiger – his back was never an issue. He never had one one problem with his back. His problem was was the knee, and we always had to to kind of work around that and try to come up with a, a, a swing, if you would, that was easier on his knee, where he didn't snap his leg coming through the ball. But I don't know how you avoid, you know, putting your back in some jeopardy because it's just it's just that vital to the to the golf swing, and any swing is going to put some pressure on it. But I'm sure he's he's analyzing it and he's got all his biomechanical experts and they're analyzing okay what are the things that you could do that would make it easier on you 
I, I think the problem that he's got is is when I look at, at, at other athletes that come back from back injury, they have to do so much maintenance to keep mm-hmm. their back strong and to keep the muscles around it uh, strong so they can support the back that, you know, to me, that's just time that uh, is taken away from your practice time. And and I, I, I question how you're going to be able to climb the mountain, so to speak, mm-hmm. when, um, you know, half the, half the time you get to spend is, is preparing to start to climb. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're still, you still have to, to take this, this uh, long journey to get your game back. But if, you, if you're spending two or three hours a day maintaining your muscle strength in your, in your back and in the supporting areas, um, you know, how, when, when are you going to be able to practice? And, you know, like I said, I mean, when, when we looked at Tiger's game last, despite what, you know, people kind of ha- have turned this into, I mean, he did not leave with a, with a, a good golf game. And uh, to think that it's just automatically going to be, you know, back to like it used to be in the past, I think that's wishful thinking at best. It's great. Matt, Matt has written stories about this, and when he talks to you about just the extent of work that Tiger has put in, in recovering from an injury to get himself tournament ready. And it's amazing. I think mm-hmm. people really underappreciate how much work was put in. So assuming that he is on the scale of work ethic, he's an 11 in terms of how much work he puts in on the range you know, at the height of his career, can, can a golfer, can he cut that in half and be an effective golfer? Or is there no way for him to be competitive if he scales back extensively? Well, I don't know how you could. I mean, I, I, you know, he's Tiger Woods, so anything's possible. And he certainly, you know, remembers how to play and knows how to play. And, you know, he could, he could pull a rabbit out of the hat at any moment because, you know, I mean, he's just, he's just that good and he's been that good. I mean, Jack Nicklaus won the Masters at 46 years old, so anything's possible. But having said that, you know, when you talk about, you know, getting, getting back to being competitive, I mean, the tournaments of mad, matter are major championships. And when was the last time he was, he was you know, ready to play and competitive at a major championship? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been a while. And I, I, I think that the, the practice time is what that he's missed and the playing time, you know, just even if you just, just let's just, you know, for the sake of an argument, give him a healthy back and say there's no issues there. I still think that uh, it's a lot of time to, to to get his game back, and a lot of energy, and a lot of patience, and a lot of determination, and a lot of desire. And these are all things that, you know, when a when a player uh, turns 40 years old, that you know, it's just it's just you know the way it is. I mean, they they tend to to be lessened. I mean, it's just the the you know, it's just the reality of the situation. I think you could make a comparison too to the NFL when you see running backs, you know, twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty year old running backs, and then NFL parlance. Those guys are old twenty nine or old thirty. You know, I, I think of Tiger as being an old forty, and if you compare that to say Phil Mickelson, who's forty five, I think Mickelson is probably comparatively a young forty five. You know, somebody who who hasn't had the injury history that Tiger's had and seems to be able to, whether it's through genetics or through you know the the style of swing that he has has been able to to stay relatively healthy and do kind of the same things physically into his forties that it doesn't look like Tiger's going to be able to do. Well, I mean, I, you know, that's a good point. He's been doing it for a long time. I think it's it's uh, you know it is it is definitely something that um, 
you know, when you when you look at it, it, it it's probably uh, you know a good comparison that you know he he has had a lot of miles on his on his body at, at you know at 40 years old. But you know, boy, no matter how you cut it, I mean, you're closer to the end than the beginning mm-hmm. at 40 years old. At the end of the day, uh, you know, when a, a a player is just 40 years old and he's playing a professional sport, I mean, that's that's just uh, you know that that's not closer to the beginning yeah. that's for sure well, a 40 and, year old yeah. professional athlete is something you don't see in in uh in in many sports and and uh you know you you see it you see it more in golf but it's mm-hmm. still it's still a 40 year old professional athlete is a 40 year old professional yeah. athlete and, yeah and you're trying to beat guys you know jordan spieth rory mcelroy you know guys mm-hmm. guys that have won majors now who are in their early to mid twenties? You know, physically they're in their prime, and also they have the experience of winning majors. So that fear factor is a little bit different than it would have been when Tiger was in his prime. And so when you you, you compare, you know, or you you talk about that physical factor along with the, the the mental factor that goes with you know being able to intimidate, like you said, that it seems yeah. to be a high mountain. Tiger intimidated with his with his game. I mean, when you're when you're, it's easy to say that you know he intimidated everybody when he was. You know, number one in, in most every important statistical category, or or certainly top ten or near the top. When you're that dominant statistically, uh, yeah, you can be intimidating. But when you're, you know, near the bottom in driving accuracy and near the bottom in three putt avoidance and dead last on the tour in scrambling, uh, you can have all the intimidation in the world. And you're not beating anybody. Yeah. Well, and the memories aren't the same either. Rory McIlroy or Jordan Spieth, they never played against. They've, they've never seen that Tiger. So anything they they know about it is from, you know, is, is secondhand watching highlights. I mean, it's a it's a generational. It's it's really a generational gap. The only thing I'd say is, I mean, good, we're good getting point. we're getting into amateur psychology a little bit. But you said yourself, he's missed something like six years worth of golf. And from a physical standpoint, there's no question that he is spotting those guys quite a bit. From a from a mental motivation standpoint, though, I would imagine he's someone who's got a lot left to prove because all he's been hearing about for for X amount of time is how how he's finished, and also there's that's a lot of tournaments that he's sat at home sure. watching that he may have some some you know he ha- has a little bit of competitive juice left in him that mo- some guys might have exhausted by now. That's speculation. That's a huge assumption, though. That's just a huge assumption that people like to make, and it's based on on. You know, it's based on nothing more than a, a you know, a guess. I mean, that's just a, it's just an assumption that I think is is really unfounded. No, I mean, um, I acknowledge that. That, he, but... that there's this, there's this, there's this, you know, pent up desire to to prove everybody wrong. And if that's the case, I mean, and I and I, I'm not I'm not saying that that isn't a factor sometimes. But I will say this: I mean, how many times can a person go to that well? Right. If mm-hmm. that if that's the well you're going to. You can't you can't visit that well ten times. I mean that that motivation has to be there. You can't a hundred percent always be motivated by the fact that you want to prove people wrong and you want to prove you can still do it and you want to do this and that. I mean, realistically speaking, when he he sits down and, and analyzes things and, and reviews his career, I mean, he doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. I mean, yep. he's he has been. The most dominant player. They talk about these great players today, and there's no, there's no doubt about them. They're very, very good players, but they are not even remotely, and not mm-hmm. even remotely, in the same league as where Tiger Woods was. And they're not even close. Well, also, I think just like Kobe Bryant, we're watching it this year. Sometimes physically, you just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, the. I think if you ask Kobe Bryant, he would tell you that 
maybe the drive is still the same as it was, but physically you can't do it anymore. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Hank, you're, you're talking about um, a guy like Tiger. The comparison people could make is look at what Peyton Manning went through. Peyton Manning had this this strong, decorated career. He missed a year with a neck injury. And at that point, you could say, oh, he had a lot of motivation left to come back and prove that he could still play. And he did that. But imagine now he did that four, had to do that four or five times. That's when you start getting into right. where the realm of Tiger is in. So after you already won the yeah. championship. Yeah. Yeah, after you've already won the championship. Well, let's let's um, and it's interesting stuff, and obviously you can't you can't talk enough about him because everyone's so fascinated by it. But I'm curious, um, somewhat related, because Tiger made some comments uh, last week when he was talking about his new course about um, the state of the game and and how to get people involved. There's a recent study that came out from the National Golf Foundation that said that uh, there are more people who are trying golf than ever before, but the number of people who are sticking with golf has dipped a little bit. I'm curious from your perspective, why do you think that is? The, the standard answer, of course, has been that people who try the game find it to be too difficult or find it to be elusive because of money and time. Uh, what's your impression of where where the game is, Hank, in terms of keeping people interested in the game? Well, I mean, I, you know, if, if there was you know, one thing that I would, would think would make a big difference, I think it's it would be better instruction, to be honest with you. I think better instruction would would help people stick to the game, would would uh, grow the participation, would get people playing more than they, they currently play. Uh, one of the unfortunate things about golf instruction is is that when, you know, you are a beginning instructor, you're an inexperienced instructor, you you are the one who teaches the beginners. You're the one mm-hmm. who teaches the, the the poor players, the one who the ones who are struggling the most at the game. That's just the way it it, it works, and and kind of in the whole pecking order thing. And as you get to be a better instructor, you work with the more talented players, and you work with with better players. But the reality of it is is that it's the it's the beginning golfers. It's the it's the players with the difficult mistakes it's the players that are on the the verge of of leaving the game those are the ones that really need the best instruction and i can just i can just tell you that if you take a a, you know an absolute beginner golfer out there and uh, and you have butch Harmon help them or you have you know joe the assistant pro who's who's giving his first golf lessons of his career uh, you have him help them uh, Butch Harmon would have a lot better chance hooking that person on the game, getting them to continue in the game, uh, getting them, you know, to be a real golf participant in the game, than you know the the, the assistant pro given his first lesson would. And I think this is the the thing that that uh, you know would really uh, have a huge influence on growing the game, getting more people to play. Is if you know the the, the best instructors uh, were were the ones that were were, were teaching these players that are the most at risk for, for leaving the game. And I don't know what the answer is to that because, you know, obviously the, the best instructors are the ones that spend all the time with the touring pros. But uh, I, think, I think that would make a, a big, big difference. But that's a, that's a small part of why you go on Twitter every day, isn't it, to, to look at average player swings and try to give them a little hope, give them a little of that insight? Yeah, it is. It is, and I, you know, I feel like I feel like you know, I, 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 I'm making a little bit of a dent, you know, with my articles in Golf Digest, with my, um, you know, radio show on SiriusXM, with what I do on on Twitter. I mean, I, I feel like my career has kind of gone full circle because when you start, you teach beginners, and then you have this opportunity to teach touring pros, which I did for 30 years, and now I'm I'm kind of back teaching the average player just. Uh, 
you know, helping them and, and, you know, trying to grow the game, trying to give back to the game and, you know, hopefully making golf, you know, a better game. But it, it, it's something I enjoy. I, lo- I love creating golf consumers. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I think, I think better teachers, to be honest with you, could, uh, can do that, you know, more effectively than somebody that's, that's less experienced and, but, um, you know, it's just kind of the, the way it goes in teaching. I think one of the things that makes that your Twitter feed so interesting to me is that you can look at someone's swing and in, you know, two words, three words, you can make an effective case for what they're what they need to work on. It's not a lot. And I'm curious if you think that maybe one of the mistakes that an inexperienced instructor makes is they overcomplicate instruction. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely prevalent because, you know, one of the things you're seeing nowadays is there's so much technology, and technology is great for uh, analyzing, for diagnosing, but it it doesn't really simplify things. If, if anything, it has a tendency to make it more complicated. What I always focus in on is the golf ball. What's the golf ball doing? So when I look at somebody's swing or, you know, it starts really with their setup, but usually there's some some giveaways from the start. Like if a player sets the club face down closed at a dress, you you can be pretty well be assured that he has a a problem slicing the golf ball. If he sets the club face down open or ducks his right elbow in, he's probably he's probably got a problem hooking the ball. So my comments are always based on on what I think the ball is doing based on uh, any giveaways that I saw at the address position or things that I saw in the swing, like a, a, a swing path being off to the left usually indicates that the person has been slicing to the right. Uh, it, I think you have to relate to, to the flight of the ball. Uh, no matter how simple you make things, for a, they're, they're not simple enough for a, a beginning golfer. And, and you know, we, we all know it when we go to, to try to learn, you know, something new that we haven't done before. I mean, I was, uh, you know, playing, playing, uh, you know, tennis down in, in, at uh, El Dorado and Cabo, and I'm, I'm getting a little help from the pro, and I, I, I couldn't understand, you know, I couldn't understand anything he was saying. And it was probably the most basic stuff. But so it just made me think that, you know what, this is what it's like when a, a, a golf instructor is talking to a beginner golfer. They they don't understand anything that they're that they're saying. So for the most part, you can't keep it simple enough. I can't agree more. I think the a huge barrier for people is that the game is 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 unnecessarily complicated in some cases. Hank, what's your you were you know in, we're in a part of the country you don't have this problem where you are, but in, we're in a part of the country where people are just starting to emerge from from the winter and thinking about playing. You know, if if you were to offer a few sort of suggestions about ways to wade back into playing i know that one thing you you said i thought we thought was a great tip was like you know you should be doing 100 swings a day at home just without you know not without hitting a ball what else can people be doing i mean that that's what's been one of my most effective uh tips if you will i mean i tell people take 100 practice swings a day and if you can't do 100 do 50 or do 75 or 25 or whatever you can do but the more swings you take, you become imminently more coachable, for one. Your, your swing will improve, if nothing else, your balance, your, your timing, your rhythm, uh, your awareness of where the club is, just your golf muscles will, will get in, in better shape, your, your hands will get in, in better shape, and, and you'll be used to, to holding and swinging the golf club. So I think that 
that would certainly help a lot. It would it would cut down the transition from winter to to spring uh, for you if you had taken swings and and uh, you know kind of got got yourself in a little bit of, of golf shape that way. But the big thing for me is if you want to get better at golf, you you have to have a plan. Uh, to make that plan, you have to have a diagnosis. So you, you need to analyze your game and what was holding you back last year and and then try to make a, a plan to, to help yourself improve for, for the for the next year. Um, and I think that's the fun of the game really is trying to trying to get better. Well, we're going to get together in a couple of weeks to shoot our next batch of tips and uh, in Phoenix, you can take a look at my driver's swing. Maybe you can fix it before the season starts. <laughs> That's, that's not a, that's not a short plan. That's a long plan. <laughs> um, well, great, Hank. This is really great stuff. We really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Any any time, guys. I appreciate you doing this with me. You can uh, you can follow Hank on Twitter at Hank Haney. You can see him or you can listen to him every day at uh, PGA Tour Radio on Sirius XM. That's ten to eleven Eastern time, right? Absolutely. All right, Hank. Take care. Uh, all right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Appreciate. It. Thanks to Hank Haney for joining us from Phoenix. Matt, thank you as well. You've been working with Hank for a while. The guy's obviously a fountain of knowledge, not just about Tiger Woods, but certainly the Tiger stuff is fascinating. It is amazing. Yeah, uh, when when Hank was teaching Tiger and following him around at majors, and part of my job was to walk around with him and get his take on what was going on, both with what Tiger was doing and what the other guys were doing. So to be able to have that kind of insight and sort of see it firsthand, it's, I mean, you won't find many people who have not only the knowledge that we're talking about, but the experience to go with it. He's a, he's a interesting guy and, a, and, a, and he knows a lot about the golf swing and a lot about the game. Yeah. I mean, he knows it's, it's a really great perspective because he obviously understands it from the highest level, but he also, like we talked about is extremely effective in dissecting the swings of, of very mediocre players. So it's a good dichotomy. Anyway, thanks again to everyone for joining. Thank you, Matt. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Golf Writers Podcast on iTunes and give us a rating if you can and come back next week to see who our guests are. Yeah, and be sure to follow both Sam and I on Twitter. Oh, yeah, follow us At on Rudy Ryder. Yes, at Sam Weinman.